Kate, thank you for that generous introduction. And I thank Justin for the invitation to share his pulpit this morning. It's my pleasure to be back here at First Universalist. I was here summer before last after my family and I enjoyed a week at Camp Unistar. My children, Eric and Jesse, ultimately decided that if it weren't for Minnesota winters, this would be a cool place to live. (laughs) Our first winter in Boston, it never got above 20 degrees for almost a month. You probably shirk at that. But when my kids complained, I told them that they were helping fulfill a legend that locals believed that hell had to freeze over before the Red Sox could win a World Series. It worked that year, but I wouldn't know what to tell them that would get them through winters here. I had the pleasure Friday of having breakfast with your newly called minister. I congratulated Justin then, and I congratulate all of you now. Please know I'll be with you in spirit for Justin's ordination installation on the 25th. I note that you've only scheduled three hours, so I guess it will be a brief and kind of minimalist celebration. But... <laughs> After six years as president and CEO of UUSC, I have given up any notion that ministers and congregations invite me to their pulpits because of my theological reach. However, I do try to keep in mind Bertrand Russell's admonition, quote, one of the symptoms of an approaching nervous breakdown is to believe one's work is terribly important, end quote. I'm in the Twin Cities this particular weekend because of an annual conference about the German minister and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Friday night as part of that conference, as Kate mentioned, we showed a film in your social hall about the founders of the Unitarian Service Committee, the Reverend Waitstill and Martha Sharp. I had chosen that hymn, Come Sing a Song with Me, because I believe they really did bring hope where hope was hard to find as they trudged from internment camp to internment camp trying to get people out under the Nazis' nose who were threatened. I have a wonderful sermon, or two or three, about them. Three years ago, they became only the second and third Americans out of 22,000 people around the world named as righteous among the nations by the state of Israel, a title given to Gentiles who risked their lives to save Jews during the Holocaust. The Sharps are a great sermon topic, but in the midst of the conference this week, A scholar from the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum was speaking about Bonhoeffer's life, and suddenly I knew I had to toss out the sermon I had reworked for today. So you only get the title of what that one was. Before I speak about Bonhoeffer, though, let me thank everyone who attended the film showing, everyone who helped arrange the lovely dinner as well as the event itself, and especially Chris Brimmer, who brought the director of the Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at UMM to White Bear last year to hear me, which resulted in the invitation to participate in the Bonhoeffer Conference. If you missed the film Journey to Freedom, the good news is that as we were completing it, PBS acquired it, so it will show on their network of affiliate stations across the nation sometime next year. And after it airs on PBS, it will be available to congregations. It is a story that has never been told and a piece of history about which Unitarian Universalists should be very proud. In May 2010, next spring, which marks the 70th anniversary of the founding of the Unitarian Service Committee, 
A book called American Relief Workers Who Defied the Nazis will be published by the University of Nebraska Press, which will tell the story in far more detail than an hour-long film permits. So keep your eye out for the publication date of the book. I will not presume that everyone knows a lot or even a little about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. As I mentioned previously, he was a Lutheran minister who is revered around the world today as a prophet by theologians, both left and right, as well as a heroic figure of the resistance who opposed the Nazis. He is best known for his deep Christian theology that led him to believe it was his duty to participate in a plot to murder Adolf Hitler. The plot failed. He was arrested, jailed, sent to a concentration camp, and then executed only months before allies would have liberated him. The scholar from the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, Victoria Barnett, went on to say that she sees him as a far more complex figure than the hero with, who with such clarity offered an early and public critique of National Socialism, Nazism. In 1934, he said, you, cannot, you can either be a national socialist or a Christian, but you cannot be both, end quote. Victoria Barnett posits that he was far more complex than the theologian martyr executed because of his Christian-driven resistance to Nazism. She has edited a thousand-page biography of Bonhoeffer, first published in German, and has found him a far more complicated, torn, and ultimately haunted man than the heroic Bonhoeffer. Haunted, she says, by some of the same questions that haunt us today. The looming question for him was how to be human. That is, how to act morally despite the ways in which living with and in the midst of Nazism had corrupted his soul. This, not whether he should help murder Hitler, was the issue that Victoria points out that he wrestles with continually in his wartime writings. How to retain his humanity when he was acutely aware that to survive each day meant compromise of some sort. That's what caught my attention. Is not his moral dilemma our dilemma on a different scale? We don't live surrounded by evil, but if we are truthful, we are surrounded by injustice perpetrated by indifference, by intolerance, by unwillingness to speak out forcefully enough. We all believe racism is wrong, but how do we act upon those beliefs? Are we compromised by a system of institutionalized racism that makes it more likely a young black man in America will go to jail rather than go to college? How do we retain our humanity in the midst of an economic system that writes the rules unfavorably for women? Why do women earn so much less than men for the same job? Why do women enjoy far less promotions than men in any companies? Why can't people of the same sex, if they love each other, marry? Does it compromise us if we are white and privileged and it allows us to get ahead to earn more money to send our children to college? These are hard questions, uncomfortable questions. How about violence? Most of us don't think of ourselves as violent persons, but we tolerate a lot of violence in our name. We allow our wars to be fought by young men and women who join the military because there aren't other jobs available for them. 
We allow others to be wounded or die in Iraq or Afghanistan because our children don't face a draft. The all-military military does that for them. Well, we could say we don't support those wars, but does that mean we should let torture be done in our name? We ask why the Germans tolerated the final solution, and Germans today ask how Americans allow their government to commit torture, which is clearly named as a crime against humanity in the Convention Against Torture that the U.S. signed and was ratified by our Senate. Are we compromised the same way that Bonhoeffer felt? Compromised because of what it took to live in the Third Reich in the early 1940s? I think we face some of the same dilemmas as Bonhoeffer, but of course on a much different moral scale. I think Unitarian Universalism asks us the same question Bonhoeffer asked himself. Surrounded by a world that can be cynical, violent, corrupt, and even evil, how do we retain our humanity? I think Bonhoeffer taught us that there is never clarity in answering that question. But in trying to answer it and struggling with it, we become more human. Part of that struggle to be human is to find community, to find like-minded individuals with whom we can reflect, celebrate, lament, and try to make sense of a world that does not always help us to be more human. Part of that struggle is to participate to the degree we can in choosing those who will lead us. Germans only thought they were electing leaders in 1934 who could be replaced if they didn't do a good job, but instead their government was hijacked. I think some of us felt that way in the last eight years, but we banded together and we said we wanted a a different direction for our nation, a different leader, and indeed for the world. And we were fortunate that the machinery and safeguards that we have put in place to change our leadership actually worked although there were some that after the election in 2000 had doubts about it. When the direction of our nation, or even our state, or even our community go off course, we bear witness. We bear witness to bring injustice to the attention of others who may be too busy, or perhaps too comfortable, too privileged, maybe indifferent. I was so anguished about the prospect of another Vietnam in Central America that I chose to bear witness by working in the middle of a free fire zone as a physician in El Salvador. And if bearing witness doesn't suffice, then we up the ante to civil disobedience, which is what UUs did around this country when they chose to defy the federal government and declare their churches sanctuaries for those fleeing the U.S.-supported violence in Guatemala or El Salvador. Those are actions that we take to be more fully human. Our consciences don't allow us to do less. Sometimes we have to begin alone in small groups because what we are, I call, early warning systems. We are bearers of moral alarm when others aren't yet awakened and may not want to be. We risk ridicule. We risk alienation. We risk punishment. Certainly Bonhoeffer knew he would be executed if caught And he worried about his family facing a similar consequence. But finally, his Christian conscience allowed him to do no less than participate in tyrannicide. It was the journey to that precipice, the doubts, the uncertainty, the haunting questions of how to be fully human in the midst of evil that helped him become more human. And it's what we share with all those on whose shoulders we stand as bearers of moral alarm, universalists and Unitarians.
throughout the ages. I would suggest to you that at UUSC, we search for those opportunities where with your help, we can both be more human, but also by joining hands with others, we can accomplish together what we cannot accomplish alone. We like to say that the work of human rights is the work of joining many hands. Our mission statement says that UUSC advances human rights and social justice around the world, partnering with those who confront unjust power structures and mobilizing to challenge oppressive policies. We work in some places like northern Uganda, Burma, and Darfur that are called forgotten because the conflicts have gone on so long that the media no longer bother to report. Today we partner with the women and girls who are victims of gender violence in Darfur by establishing centers where they can recover their dignity after being raped and then being violated again when their families reject them for having brought shame upon them. We have a courageous staff person on the ground there who takes a multifaceted approach to women's protection and strengthens women's ability to protect themselves. She trains camp leaders about gender-based violence and helps them think through ways to protect women. She trains the new Unimed police forces there and ensures that there's at least one woman on each of those patrols. She makes sure there's a translator that can speak the language of the women they're escorting to, to cut wood. An 18-year-old named Suad, who lives in an internally displaced persons camp in Darfur, told us, quote, I gave birth to this baby. I used to want to kill myself and my baby. I then discovered this women's center, and I found it was not, it was not the only place. There were other women who had gone through a bad experience. I'm now being helped to love this child, and although it's really hard, I know it's not the child's fault. At this center, I've also been receiving training that allows me to make money, end quote, which means she doesn't have to leave the camp to try to gather firewood where many of the assaults on women take place. Darfur was the first time our government had officially labeled a conflict genocide, and I think many of us hoped and expected that the many nations around the world who had signed the Convention Against Genocide would respond, but they did not, nor did ours. So we are there doing what we can do to protect girls and women. Just like Martha and Wastel Sharp plunged into Czechoslovakia and later into France to do what they could to save people threatened by the Nazis. We are protecting girls and women. This is something Amina, our staff person there, could not do alone. She couldn't be there without your help, without the members at First Universalist and other U congregations across the country who are members of USC. A few fortunate women got to meet her when she left that hell to, be, to come to the International Gathering of UU Women in Houston last March. Amina had a comfortable job with the United Nations, which she gave up to do this work. She has a family that is in neighboring Kenya that she sees only once every couple of months. But she too was struggling with the question of how she could be more human in the shadow of the genocide going on in Darfur. Her work is emotionally draining, it's dangerous, but it is what she is called to do, and I thank you for your support to help her. Last summer in Kansas City, UUSC played a pivotal role in a very local struggle about dignity and worth. The local minimum wage there was $2.65 an hour. So if your job didn't involve interstate commerce, that's what employers could pay you. Imagine a single mom trying to support a child or two at 40 hours a week 
which means $106 gross pay, not take-home. If she took no vacations, it would be about $5,512 a year. So if she worked two 40-hour jobs, she would still be well below the poverty rate. People of conscience in Kansas City were troubled. They could not be fully human while others were so denigrated. They had organized, demonstrated, borne witness, and tried to raise the minimum wage to the federal minimum, but as volunteers were unable to do so. They felt if they had a full-time staff for a few months, they could tip the balance, and we were able to give them the grant to do that. And indeed, last July, they passed the local minimum wage there to the federal minimum of six fifty-five an hour. That was in Wyandotte County, where Kansas City is located, and their effort inspired others, and within six months, the whole state of Kansas had raised its minimum wage to the federal minimum, which on January 1st became $7.25. They accomplished something together that they could not have accomplished alone, and those of you who are USC members should feel proud of that accomplishment. A few years ago, USC made a film about the living wage campaign in Santa Fe, which I was once a part of, and asked women how their lives had changed as a result of gaining a living wage. Most of them said that they spent more time with their children on weekends because they no longer had to work two jobs. We not only help ourselves be human when we engage in these struggles, but the people on whose behalf we confront unjust power structures become more human too. Friday during the Bonhoeffer Conference, I received notice that a priest in Maywood, California, a community in the heart of Los Angeles County, had agreed to co-author an opinion editorial with me for the L.A. Times. Earlier this summer, UUSC teamed up with several community-based organizations and the statewide network of UU congregations in California, their equivalent of Moose Jaw, and passed a bill in the Assembly and in the Senate called the California Human Rights and Water Act. You see, in Maywood, tap water is often orange because it's stained with manganese, and it tastes terrible, and it's threatened by a plume of industrial solvent called TCE from a Superfund site as well as from pesticide runoff. Parents there are just some of the 150,000 people in California who cannot drink their tap water. This bill says that everyone has the right to sufficient, safe, affordable water for drinking, cooking, and sanitary purposes. Just like you cannot cut off gas or electricity in the midst of winter in Minnesota when people cannot pay their utility bills, we hope this will lead to a lifeline for water as well in California. Today, in most states, when water services shut off, families can lose their children to child protective services because the home is considered unsafe. In South Africa, in Ecuador, in California, UUSC is working to make people's lives more human by establishing the right to water. For almost a decade, I worked in American communities in New Mexico and Texas that followed the Rio Grande, the border with Mexico, Communities that were without running water and sewer that housed about 350,000 people. Once we transported some community members from the border up to Austin for a legislative hearing, we didn't know exactly what they would say, but one teenage girl told about her dad who drove 30 miles to fill gallon jugs of water for the family's use. She said it cost gas, wear and tear on the car, wear and tear on him, and 25 cents a gallon at vending machines, which didn't always work. By the time the cooking was done, 
Dishes were washed and babies bathed. There was often little left for the teenage girl. I'll never forget what she said next. Quote, I have never been ashamed of being poor. It is our daily bread. But I haven't been embarrassed when I've had to go to school for a week without being able to wash my hair. End quote. The human right to water is inextricably linked with human dignity. So the struggle to be human in the midst of a world that too often denies our humanity or that of others is what we have in common with Bonhoeffer. No matter what we have professed as our faith, Christians, UUs, or people of conscience, and that's the work I'm privileged to lead at UUSC, the work that you make possible. Through guests at your table, through special collections at disasters, through individual memberships at UUSC, you support our work. Most UUs, we discover, do not know that we are not part of the Unitarian Universalist Association, the UUA, and are financially independent of them. So none of your fair share supports our work. We work hand-in-glove with the UUA, and I'm proud of the close relationship we've established these last six years. But we're not joined at the financial hips. UUSC, however, is blessed with a volunteer network of more than 600 local representatives at congregations and fellowships across the country and more than 60 regional coordinators across district that help make congregations aware of our work. This morning I'd like to recognize Chris Bremer, a tireless regional coordinator, and Pat Gottschall, your new local representative, and thank them for their efforts. Would you both please stand? I have a colleague from, from Boston with me. I'd just like to introduce it. Maxine Neal, if you would quickly stand. Thank you for coming. In June 1966, at the University of Cape Town in South Africa, at the very height of apartheid, Bobby Kennedy said, Few of us will have the greatness to bend history itself, but each of us can work to change a small portion of events, and in the total of all those acts will be written the history of this generation. As he struggled with what it meant to be Christian in the midst of Nazism, Dietrich Bonhoeffer had no sense of greatness. And as Victoria Barnett has helped us to understand, he struggled for clarity that was elusive. But he had a conscience that demanded he try to understand what it meant in those circumstances to be more human. His sermons, his theological reflections, his letters from prison have collectively contributed to the greatness of this solitary man who six decades after his death inspires people of conscience around the world. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is the foundation of our work at UUSC, arose in a manner of speaking from the ashes of the Holocaust, arose in part from the words and deeds of a Lutheran pastor who in 1933 helped draft the ecumenical Sophia condemnation of Nazi racial laws. I thank Victoria Barnett this morning for helping us remember not the larger-than-life hero Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but the very human Dietrich Bonhoeffer, beset by doubt and often uncertain where he was going. Victoria told us Friday that years ago she asked a woman who had known Bonhoeffer what she remembered most about him. The woman replied simply, His goodness. May that be what others remember about us as well. I close with this reminder. 
defending human rights demands that we say no to the propaganda of war and no to the corporations that benefit from killing and instead we say yes to our culture that honors women because they more than men nurture life and yes to our culture that honors the sun because it more than oil produces life and yes to our culture that honors water because it more than the stock market sustains life and yes to our culture that honors the seasons and decency and human dignity because they all illuminate life. The seeds of this culture have been planted by ministers and laypersons in Unitarian and Universalist congregations, which for more than 150 years have been at the forefront of the effort to keep the ship of state of ours on a self-correcting course. Whether the issue is abolition, women's suffrage, the Holocaust, civil rights, Vietnam, Central America, Iraq, or equal marriage, Unitarians or Universalists have been there helping us leading us, bearing witness, and always finding ways to be more fully human. Amen. May it be so.